the guiding principle behind the, the design of the Alex Centre was, I suppose, a little unstructured is the word, in the sense that we were there were so many influences uh, which were trying to send us in various directions. If you think about the Ilac building itself, uh, it fronts onto three different streets, and each of these streets has its own very different character, or in some, in fact, I think the case of Parnell Street at the time, lack of character. Rebellion is always going against what is the norm of the day. Right now, the norm of the day is so-called rebellion music, the loud, you know, it's the green days, here we go, punk again, oh no, we just roll our eyes, here we go again, and here's Mike Flowers, he's got the wigs on, he's got the, you know, the Technicolor videos. The thing with irony nowadays, with pop culture taking itself so seriously, is something that becomes more ironic if you do it at the wrong place at the wrong time, it all depends on context, really. Oh, 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 oh. Dream. Oh, uh, there was, there was, um, there was that shopping mall, which stretched on as far as the eye could see, and it was, it was full of the bits of really beautiful, famous buildings just turned into these plastic shop fronts, and all over the place were these great jungles of fake plants. Which which someone seemed to have sprayed with some kind of stuff to make them look even less convincing than they were. And somehow I stumbled into this really, really awful cinema. And I was made to watch this appalling film. Well, it, um, what was it called now? Um, uh, yeah, I can see the title on this poster now. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so Bad It's Good. That was the name of the film. And just dragged on and on and on and on. It was so badly dubbed as well. I it was so tedious. And then it ended, and and I thought, oh, it's okay. And and some people, the people who were sitting in front of me, who'd been blocking my view of the film the whole time, they turned to me and they said, you know, it's all right. You're just having a pastiche nightmare. And I thought, oh, fine. <sighs> and then they started cackling hysterically, and they ran away with their flared trousers just flapping in the wind and their awful haircuts billowing and uh, and then I woke up and worst of all is I'm just talking to this microphone making this up right now and even I'm being ironic because I know you know I'm in a studio and not in my bed why is the world like this why is everything so damned ironic nowadays my new dear old friend Steve O'Baroub has a penchant for juxtaposing quite different musical styles He's a late-night disc jockey. Maybe he knows what all this means. Great band there. The shoes. Good stuff. Power pop. Three chords on the truth. Who said that? Was it that Bono boy? Was it? <laughs> Your cuss is as good as mine. Good stuff there from the shoes. The track was called A Thing Over the Past. And we're going to backtrack just a wee bit there with Food. Glorious food from the soundtrack of the Oliver film. Remember that kid? Mark Lester. What a voice. What a voice. Where did that kid go? Where is he? Anybody knows where Mark Lester is? Please phone me up and tell me and I'll tell the world and it'll be our little secret. I don't know what that very annoying noise is in the background, but I wish it would just shut the hell up. Oh. Stop it. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Oh, decision, decisions, folks. We're going to have to go along here. I'm looking at the big clock on the wall. Tick, tock, tick, tock, tick, tock away. It's 16 minutes to 1 o'clock loads of time. 
We're going to jump right into something that's mildly entertaining, probably annoying to most of you, but for you few select individuals, you're going to really enjoy this one. This is a classic track out of the old cobwebs. Steve Jordan and Las Carianadas. Here we are in the control center of the, uh, I guess it's the radio equivalent of the Moulinex, the Magi Blend, blending up all these different types of music like some uh, great big wearing blender, <laughs> the sound swizzing around in the giant big glass bowl and being sent out to the airwaves. You've got a juxtaposition of styles within music these days, blur, appropriate, all kinds of sounds, and so do Oasis, and everyone is sampling hither and thither, and now you seem to be uh, juxtaposing between tracks. You're following Iggy Pop with Sonny Rollins' Jazz, and following that with 70s Disco, and what do we have here? What was that thing with all the uh, Jean-Jacques Perret and the synthesizer sounds? Ah, good stuff. What's the point behind all this? What are you trying to do? Well, it's fun. It's absolute madness. It's fun. When you're a kid and you're, you're listening to stuff that uh, maybe you shouldn't have been listening to, and, you know, you feel a bit guilty. You grow up and it's what was trendy with your parents that you actually loved as a child. You're not supposed to like it anymore. Your friends are going, hmm, that's easy listening, or that's blues, or that's country. I got a link here. I haven't even picked that up track yet. What do you think? What do you think playing one track next to another does to it? Say, say for instance, playing following um, Frank Sinatra with, say, the Sex Pistols. Well, actually, I think you you appreciate it. First of all, the ironic thing. I'm going to backtrack just to, okay. just to make a point. A little story. When I was a kid, I was going through my Beatles stage. You know, I had the Beatles tapes, the whole lot. And my grandfather used to give out to me, saying, "That's not music. That's noise, etc., etc., etc." And he used to listen to this Muzak radio station. And uh, one day, there was uh, an orchestrated version of something, Beatles song, of course. And then he, like one of these, my father, Italian man, well, lovely man, slapped me on the head, as, well, lovely Italian men tend to do, <laughs> and says, that's music, that's what you should listen to. And to this day, I'm 32 years old now, I just wish I just went up there and said, that was a Beatles song. <laughs> <laughs> so it just makes it a medley can transpire through any type of music, and that's what's the fun about it. You can transfer. Frank Sinatra, funny enough, to something has declared something as the best song he's ever heard or recorded in the 20th century, in, in terms of pop music as a whole. Something by the Beatles, which he has publicly denounced the Beatles as heathens to American society. So there you go. You, you look at that aspect of it, and you just like it's all in the medley. So you think underneath all this irony and this witty, uh, oh, we're so clever, we're just being a little bit sincere and getting back to the music? Of course. It's all down into a few simple catchy lyrics, a few simple catchy uh, rhythms. And at the end of the day, it's pop music. Questions for Mike Flowers, May 25th, 1996, R. Harriet for RTE Radio 1 Dublin. Number 6, irony has been applied to the Mike Flowers Pops by his fans, by people like me doing documentaries. Does that mean anything? Um, irony, irony. Someone suggested it wasn't irony, it was sarcasm. Well, that's probably more accurate, <laughs> I think. Um, let me think. 
I don't feel of it. It's just like as uh, it's more fantasy and surrealism, really, for me. I think and sort of Dadaistic thing to do than ironic. I'm not sure actually that's what Aaron, how Aaron is defined. Do you know? You must know. I haven't done this thing. It's defined very vaguely. <laughs> yeah. It must be very different in different cultures, I suppose, irony. I suppose the with our act, the it's just a shifting of context. Like you tell a joke, you know, and you set up a context with a story, and then at the at the end you switch context, and then that's what makes people laugh, you know. Um, I don't know irony without without humour. I don't know what happens. I suppose Jeff Coons or someone does that, doesn't he? But then it still contains humour. And I don't know. Maybe does irony always have to be? comic no no but it's still kind of funny <laughs> isn't it though you know yes it depends on who it's happening to mm. Mm. it's yeah a lot of pathos involved of, of, in a kind of Benny Hill sort of way I mean when it started doing it I didn't plan or plan you know have a certain effect that much really I, you know I just my probably biggest bugbear is if you were sort of any kind of crusade to do anything like that, you know, like attacking hierarchies, whatever. I think the biggest one is um, entertainment presented as art when it's actually entertainment, you know. If irony was banned outright by the International Board of Ironic Limitation, would that change anything for the Mike Flowers pops? If the IBO... What is it? <laughs> the IBOIL. If the IBOIL did implement its... Um, policy of banning irony I don't know if it would um, it wouldn't stop I mean it wouldn't stop me from doing it I wouldn't get as uh, many column inches in magazines but I should think it'd still get a lot of people coming to the gigs We're standing here on Samson's Lane just off Henry Street walking into the Ilac Centre from the outside, you can see a diverse mix of materials and styles. There's a very large curved feature which seems to resemble a stylized roller shutter. And right below that is a, a neoclassical triangle that seems to echo the pediments of buildings of old. And you'll see that echoed on the main frontage on Henry Street. Inside the building, we also find the diversity of styles very, very apparent. In fact, even more so. This type of mall architecture seems to epitomize the way architecture at the moment is uncertain of what it's all about. Coherence seems to have disappeared and replaced instead by uh, an ironic sort of reference to pre-existing styles, ideas, images, motifs, patterns. We'll just start looking at them. We can see strange bronze slats. We can see mosaics of the Norfolk market, we can see a, a butcher and a flower seller, which recall some other past, some other idea. And this recollection continues, this, this visual dream continues with the Art Deco Parnell Mall. It's got neon lights and gaudy pastel colours. And right next to that is a strange Tex-Mex pastiche. It's a tower, a clock tower, with Californian pastel colours, with a marbling texture. And right underneath that is a newsagent which seems to echo the Victorian street front. And then right next to that, it looks like 
I, I'm trying to find the words for it. Is it Spanish? Is it a Mediterranean outdoor style? We've got a, a bunch of parasols in an enclosed space. It seems to make no sense. However, if you get confused and tired and baffled by all of these images, you can, of course, find immediate respite and run to the lovely rustic pool, a pocket-sized version of all that's restful and peaceful about the countryside, right under the, the very nose of this ironic, kitschy architecture. Plants, and then two large bronze birds and a bronze frog spewing water restfully and peacefully into this little square pond. Are you in the countryside? Are you in a shopping mall? Are you in someone's idea of a shopping mall that's turned into an actual shopping mall? I'm not sure. I think one thing we might like to do is go and talk to the man who actually designed this, David Keane of Keane, Murphy & Duff, the architects who created the ILAC Centre. And so we'll drift away from here and rematerialize in their noisy, busy, real-life architectural offices. I think one of the things that happens in a building as large as ILAC, which is subject to refurbishments at irregular intervals over the years, is that different people, different architects, different in here different partners might be doing the job uh, so that you're not going to get a, a consistency and I don't think uh, it's necessarily a bad thing anyway. Um, these, this particular practice has never had what you might describe as an architectural philosophy in capital letters uh, and we've always just reacted to the problem as it is. As far as the sort of the references sort of to maybe other styles and other ways of doing things are concerned, that would be sort of really in the head of the individual architect itself. I suppose too it's it, it tends also to be influenced by what's happening in the outside world at any time. And again, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. Architects are influenced by one another, but then all people in, in the arts, and I think we're entitled to consider architecture as one of the arts, um, we're all influenced by what anybody else is doing at any one time. I mean, we might only be influenced in, in that we're going to reject it, but in the sense that it's there and we've looked at it and it has, it's gone into our heads somewhere, it can well come out again. I mean, there's no more. There wouldn't be any sort of, if you like, greater philosophy behind it than that. That's quite a postmodern idea, isn't it, to react to the circumstances as they come around, to change as necessary. Yes, I think it is. I think the it, it, it almost had to happen, I think, because if you look at the development of modern architecture and you look at the various competing styles, the really strong figures where they were coming from, if you look at the, the overall approach of people like Corbusier, uh, and I suppose Lloyd Reuter would be the two opposing ends of the thing, uh, and later on, Mies van der Rohe, uh, you can see where they, or what they were starting from, but I think the whole development of architecture and building techniques, and indeed the requirements of various clients, have come together in such a way that you're going to get, uh, you're not going to get the same kind of divergence as you did in those days. Would you say that at the at present time this building has evolved uh, into a postmodern building? That even unwittingly it, it has a certain degree of irony within it because of this multi-layered um, history, that the, the interaction of the different architects. Yeah, references to other people's work, and I suppose references to the past. I mean, can can either be ironic or not, depending on the mood largely of the person involved at the time. It's difficult to know when you look at a building and you see references to other buildings whether the architect was being flattering 
to his predecessors or whether he, he was being ironic or whether he was making some kind of a statement uh, you know, which, was, which, is, which wasn't all that flattering because it's very hard to tell you can't really get into their heads you just have to look at the building and unless the architect in question has made a statement on the building then you don't really know Do you feel that sometimes the explanation might be created after the building rather than before? I think a lot of architects are subject to that particular temptation. I think when we're designing uh, at the back of our mind, somewhere in our own internal computer, there are influences at work, and sometimes we're not terribly conscious. Now, we wouldn't be aware of how important each individual strand was. Uh, And I think as far as the architect is concerned at the time, that doesn't really matter because they're going to produce what they think is the appropriate solution. And I think there is a tendency for architects to ask six months, nine months, a year after the event to decide retrospectively why they did things uh, when, when they weren't terribly sure, in fact, at the time. This project was developed with financial assistance from the European Regional Development Fund, administered by Board Fulcher and Dublin Tourism. This project is supported by FOSS, says the small placard underneath the big impressive brass placard I first read out, and it says, FOSS projects are funded by the Exchequer, the European Social Fund, the local community. What is it that all this worthy money is being poured into? Why, it's films that nobody really much wants to see, and are famous for being that way. Cult films, yes. Films that are so famous for being pretty much unwatchable, strange or out of the way. I don't get it. Why would somebody want to watch a film that's like this? And indeed, what constitutes a film that is cult? What makes a film cult? Let's think of an example. Plan 9 from Outer Space. Or anything made by Ed Wood. This man was so cult, they made a film about how cult he was. Isn't that strange? Talk about wheels within wheels. Underlying the whole business of some of what makes a cult film cult is the idea that it's so bad, it's good. Let's go and see this film because it's badly acted, badly made, with bad lines, with bad set direction, bad absolutely everything. My own philosophy is that life is far, far, far too short to go and see something that's actually bad. You should try and make some effort to see a good film. Well, I don't know. Hang on a minute. Yes, I'd like uh, two tickets, uh, please, um, to see... Um, oh, what's showing here today? Uh, Darby O'Gill and the Little People, please. Thank you. Right, what am I letting myself in for? Why is a cult film a cult film? Well, we're going to meet somebody who I think can give us an answer. Inside these doors, about to watch this film, is Peter Baymoss. He's the only person actually in the theatre at the moment. Yes? I think you must have an understanding of what constitutes a cult film, Peter. Explain, why are we the only people here? I guess it has to do with a couple of factors. First of all, popularity. And that could be down to uh, a few things like um, the budget of the film and the distribution of the film. Another element would be, I guess, uh, its badness. (laughs) Why, Why go see something that's so bad? Okay, let's get, let's get down to it. When you listen to older people talk about the films that they saw when they were young and they have these uh, really warm feelings towards them and uh, a, lot of, a lot of only the great ones survived because the unknown ones just died, we 
in our generation, we, we don't have that same ability because all, all of the trashy films are still around. They're, they're perpetuated on television and on video. And uh, I think it's getting harder and harder to describe what a good thing is now. So people opt out for what is clearly bad. Do you not think there's something self-congratulatory about that? We're desperately clever. We're going to see this film because we know it's bad and reaffirm our spectacular good taste in this strange negative way. Well, I mean, in a word, yes. <laughs> Isn't that irritating? Well, I mean, it can be. Uh, there's always the people who go to see films because they enjoy the films and they don't care what the reviews say and they don't care about uh, how other people perceive it, you know. I mean, you can, you can sit and just enjoy a, a really great film as well as a spectacularly bad one. And other people... Well, they have to read the reviews or they have to listen to some charismatic person say, oh, this one is so bad. But there's also a sense of cool about it. I mean, if you know a film that nobody else knows, you know, that makes you different. That makes you special in, in, in ways that, uh, I guess, the same way music. If you know different bands and you're not following the charts, that makes you special. Isn't there a very big difference between listening to obscure but in its own way cutting-edge or brilliant music as opposed to watching a film that's spectacularly awful? I mean, put it another way, people very rarely listen to truly bad music. They just can't, but they seem to find an awful lot of time for watching films that are just thoroughly odious. Well, possibly some people are are just bored and they haven't got anything left to, to choose from at the video shop, but I think there's something really wonderful about a truly bad picture. I mean... Think about it. A film costs lots of money to make. And, uh, and then once you've made it, you still have to edit it and then try to get it shown somewhere. When, when something is just ridiculously bad, the fact that it exists at all is somewhat of a miracle. So, um, Does this explain the entire output of somebody like, for instance, Russ Myers with his huge, big-breasted women and his strange, appallingly uh, awful acting? Now, you, the thing about Russ is he did something rather special. He took sex and and made that the forefront of his films in a way that like the the soft pornography films at of the time weren't doing if you if you look at what he was doing at the time he was doing it against all the odds against all of what was what was considered in good taste uh that's true but he's still being watched today yeah especially i mean if you have you ever seen uh What's it called? Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. No, I avoid these things like the plague. I couldn't be bothered. Oh, wow, you're missing a great film because that was his only major Hollywood studio picture. It's also a really interesting look at uh, sort of the Hollywood glam life of the time. And uh, there, there are critics who say that this film is the only one that accurately depicted that in the same way that we could say the player or uh, Swimming with Sharks Today depicts Hollywood. Peter, now that we've cut to a rather shaky long shot, can I ask you, what do you think explains the cult of cult films? In other words, this uh, almost maniacal drive to collect uh, the strangest and most obscure cult films. Well, I would say that if you were to... try to collect motion pictures in, say, the 50s and 60s, it would be extremely expensive. So um, now, it's because of video, and every, every house has a video and a television, now it's, it's actually cheaper for you to start collecting and seeing films that you would normally never see because, uh, uh, first of all, you would never see it because a theater would invest the money 
into showing a film that maybe five people are going to see. But because video is so much cheaper to produce, you can all of a sudden throw it out on video and now people can see it, they know about it, they're not just uh, reading, a, say, a book about it, and they can actually collect it. And to have something like that is it's really, it's like collecting anything. You know, why do people collect little porcelain thimbles? Why do people collect spoons? This makes them, it gives you an opportunity to do something that you couldn't do in the past, which is own your own copy of a film and watch it whenever you like. Would you offer some kind of a health warning to people who've only ever seen cult films? A health warning? <laughs> well, unfortunately, I think there's some people who think that they're, that they're so into the idea of obscure that they're, they're not prepared to accept anything that is mainstream as being in its own way good or watchable or have, uh, worthwhile. The thing to understand about film is half of it is what the film brings you and the other half is what you bring the film and that's what makes the experience good or not good. Most worryingly of all, I detect the fact that... Shh! Sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Peter, um, this is the, um, the fact that unfortunately, because I've said and um, I've really expressed the wish to see good films and good alone, I think I'm going to appear to be a pompous git and be laughed at by the sorts of people who safely and knowingly go and watch rubbish films. I think it's rather unfair because here I am taking a risk at saying, I think this is a great film. And then everyone else who likes these cult films, these cool people, can just say, ha 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 you sad git. Well, why pay attention to them at all? Because they're out there. Okay. Well, uh, ask yourself this. Um... To cut yourself off to mainstream or to cut yourself off to simply cult movies, they're both unhealthy. I mean, do you love movies or do you not love movies? And you can't read a back of a, of a video box and know exactly what the film is in the same way that you can't read a, an article and know about what the film is. You have to go and witness it for yourself. So I think you're both at fault. Oh, blast. Irony in art. There are probably about three examples of irony in art which seem to be at the very centre of the pantheon of the expression of this idea in the modern visual world. Marcel Duchamp started it all off with his exhibition of a urinal that he bought somewhere and simply put up on a wall at an exhibition and it was rather badly received. What was impressive about this was the fact that it was simply art, simply because he said it was. And this seemed to throw open the whole idea of people simply saying that, well, I announce that this item here is art, regardless of what it is. And in a way, liberated people, but also liberated them to be unable to make anything concrete, to make anything absolutely certain. And so, in a way, removed the worth and merit of all those things that people have been slaving away at for such a very long time. It was a very strangely unliberating piece of liberty. Jeff Koons, of course, is another favourite. Jeff Koons has taken the idea of bad taste and kitsch and turned that into an art form. 
again, he's challenged the idea of what it is that we should expect from art with his little fluffy dogs and the kind of schmaltzy bad taste that people had hitherto laughed at, the sort of bad art that you found in white trash houses and in ugly suburban semi-detached buildings. And then, of course, these days we've got our friend Damien Hurst with his sheep and pigs and cattle and calves and formaldehyde. What is one to make of this? What's the point? It seems that the art has lost its way. And the irony is, of course, the fact that, well, this thing is what we decide we want it to be. And so the artist seems to vanish from out of the picture. Well, I've left the airy, minimal expanse of the art gallery in search of answers. I'm now about to meet artist Peter O'Kennedy at his restaurant and cafe. To put you in the picture, I'm standing in the ultimate hotel lobby, only it's not. An ocean of mustard yellow armchairs swarm around. There are Swedish design lamps that have arisen from the grave of bad taste and now are high fashion. One would expect to see Sean Connery drifting around the place, pouring himself a quart of martini. So that's where we are right now. Um, But here's Peter Kennedy to answer some of my questions. I think one of the things that defines some of the art that I've talked about um, is a self-consciousness, as if the artists are drawing attention to their own limitations. When I'm thinking about these artists, I don't mean the the people, the the run-of-the-mill sort of artists drawing ponies in fields, but the people who the public are aware of people like Jeff Koons and Damien Hirst and John Kindness and, and also Marcel Duchamp. Would you agree with that idea that that is what they're at? Uh, well, I think there's a big difference between Marcel Duchamp and the other people you mentioned because there's a, uh, you know, there's a gap of about 60 or 80 years, whatever it is. So I, th- and so I think what Marcel Duchamp was at was different because he was breaking down barriers and he was going places that no one had been before. So lucky old him, really, because the people now... The other ones you're talking about, like Jeff Koons and stuff, they actually can't do that, you know, whereas he could. He do you could. think that their gestures are a little more, more empty for that? Because they're not really rebelling against anything as such for any particular reason. Um, I don't think they're empty. I think that... Uh, I'll, I'll tell you a little story. When, when I was growing up, there was this artist in Spain, my mother used to live in Spain, he was much older than me. I mean, he was an adult when I was a kid, and I really admired him. And I went to visit him about five years ago in Madrid, and uh, he told me about how things have been going for him since and he said that, uh, you know, I don't paint anymore I'm just kind of waiting and teaching and stuff and he was a very promising artist in, in Spain and he said that he reckoned that as a race as a culture, like as a global culture we're in a kind of waiting period at the moment that if you look at things back through art history I'm not sure if he's right but I think it's an interesting theory but if you look back through history you see periods of intense creativity on in different fronts and then periods of... of not much going on, and he th- he reckons that artists as a whole are in a, are in a, in a period of standing s- sort of standing back and looking back at what's happened and trying to assimilate before going forward again. And uh, I think he might be right. I also we're, we're waiting in some kind of uh, grand departure lobby, as it were. Possibly, possibly. It's a very <laughs> appropriate image, actually. It is. Yeah. Um, the underlying irony is the thing that I'm trying to pick out That's from these I people. I actually kind of hope he's wrong as well, because it's not much fun to be here. Uh, more fun to be uh, living in a period of creative vanguardism, whatever, as opposed to being sort of sitting around waiting, you know. But what 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 does this um this common denominator thing? I mean, I, I think that um, 
okay, if not all of his artists, most of them, are being very ironic. They're using pastiche. They're using reference to other existing um, works from the past very, very self-consciously. Do you think that means anything other than this idea of just waiting around? Or would you like to offer any other ideas as to what's motivating this huge wash of irony in, in art? Yeah, I mean, the other thing I think it is, is is it's kind of another side of the same coin. It's like the world has been around for a very, very long time, and in terms of art history, it's only in the last hundred and so years that, that modernism has come along and very quickly gone to its various outer limits. Like, you know, until, you know, until the middle of the last century, uh, art always had its purpose. It was either for to make the flocks believe in God or it was to, to make rich people look good or, you know, make their land look nice or whatever. It was always had a very... It was a craft and, you know, people put their heart and soul into it. But it was, uh, it was commissioned and, you know... And the, t- the artist's tortured soul is a relatively new phenomenon uh, and the whole gallery system, and, you know, is, is very new. Art for art's sake is new in, in historical terms. It's gone, I think in what is really a very short period it's, it's uh, along with everything else that's happened this century there's been such an acceleration in, in everything but it's gone to its conclusions in most directions it's gone to uh, plain white canvases it's gone to uh, conceptual art that is actually you know so conceptual that it never gets made I mean there ha- you know what I mean like you, you, no matter what you think of somebody's done it like there is you know there, there was I can't remember his name but there was a guy who uh, was a conceptual artist and uh, just thought of things to do and didn't do them, <laughs> you know. So it's quite hard to. Uh, to so I think that people have. I think that all these people working with irony are working. In part of the reason they're working there is because they know that they can't. That all the walls have already been knocked down, and that, and and also that 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 it didn't really. The whole thing of like having a manifesto and stuff like that, kind of in in the 1990s looks a little kind of uh, naive, or something. Richard Adrian. What was the point of this whole quest? I wanted to find out just why it appeared that irony was such a prevalent um, attitude in modern culture. I was beginning to get a little bit irritated by it. In fact, quite irritated because it was becoming a cliched stance and it it seemed to me to be becoming rather a cop-out. In the people that we met, uh, in the way Steve O'Broob mixed and matched the music and the way Mike Flowers took easy listening... Uh, styles and applied them to pop songs and in David Keane's um, discussions about architecture and the buildings that he designed and in Peter Vemos's penchant for cult movies and, and Peter Kennedy's explanations of just why it seems that artists don't seem to say anything very much um, I thought that by looking at those different um, areas and talking to those people I could find out just what exactly was going on underneath that why was this attitude so prevalent because it seemed to me that uh, it was just becoming too commonplace, it was becoming a lazy way of uh, copping out, of avoiding you know, any you know, the risk of taking a stance, a particular stance on something more meaningful. We began with this, this dream sequence, which in, initially, I recall, was just simply a device, but in actual fact, it was quite, became quite relevant because I found out that irony has a rather dreamlike quality. The closer you get to it, it begins to dissolve. Now, I, I asked all of those people, why was their irony in the area that they worked and the answers were rather vague so I think irony is like some kind of a fog you know you're where it's there you try and go out and grab it it just begins to disappear if there was one thing that I learned 
by the time I finished talking to all these people was that, uh, that there are two types of irony. There's the style of irony, which was what was annoying me, which was becoming a cliche. And then there's the deeper kind of irony. And it is the second type that is useful. And if you can learn to live with that, then I think, you know, you're using irony in the right kind of way because it adds a counterweight to the rather uh, dull certainties that we have in our everyday lives. And it allows us to look at narratives of all different kinds in a new light and adds a little bit of richness to it. So that second issue, that second type of irony is the one that we should distinguish from the currently fashionable style of irony. But why does all of this trouble you? Well, what troubled me was the style of irony, the lazy attitude, the lazy uh, cop-out, the way of the way irony was used as a means of avoiding any kind of risk or responsibility. For instance, uh, saying that something was so bad it's good is a w- means of diffusing the risk that you would take if you said that a film was wonderful. Because obviously if you say a particular film or a particular art form is wonderful, you're exposed to the fact that somebody can come and say, you know, that was actually a vast amount of hogswill and therefore you look, begin to look silly. Whereas if you think something is so bad it's good, then you're avoiding that risk. The uh, other thing that disturbed me was the fact that it was also a lazy means of justifying what 10 years ago might have just been called plagiarism. The ironic reference to this and ironic quoting of that um, cultural motif is uh, something that you hear quite a lot in those boring colour Sunday supplements. It was was a, a tedious means of justifying laziness. So that was, that's bad. And if, if everyone spends their time justifying why they haven't been bothered to go out and do something new and instead just copied something old, then I think pretty soon we're all going to get really very bored by this. And I think that's something worth getting disturbed about. Mm-hmm.